Well, good morning to you all. The brave. Look at you. Here on the lawn, I, I, was, uh, I was delighted to see people show up today. I wasn't sure what would happen, to be honest. <laughs> but this is wonderful. Thank you for those who are joining us uh, on the lawn, in your vehicles, and those joining us online as well. Uh, my name is Dave Fields. I'm our lead pastor here. And um, just as a quick announcement, by the way, we are making some shifts in how we engage in worship starting next week. Um, you, if you're not a, currently a part of our email list, I would really encourage you to get on that list because all of the updates about kind of what's happening next, what's coming, uh, we send those out weekly with the bulletin. So you can just go on summitdrive.com. You'll see a contact us form. If you just fill that out online, it takes you like uh, 45 seconds max, and then you'll be registered and we'll be getting you all the information you need as well. You know, when we, uh, Catherine and I first moved to Hamilton, Ontario, uh, for, to do grad studies. Both of us were studying at McMaster University and um, we were in a rental car. We were going for Catherine's, um, what do you call that? Like an interview to get into the school in rehab sciences that she was going into. And uh, we were in a rental vehicle. We were making a left-hand turn across Highway 6. It's a big highway coming north out of the city. And uh, so we're sitting in the left turn lane and the, the, the light starts flashing green, which means what in BC? It's a pedestrian crossing, right? So we're looking for pedestrians and thinking this is a strange light to have a flashing green in the middle of like a six-lane highway. But here we are waiting and we see the vehicle starting to creep forward because we're thinking, oh, we wait for that traffic to go and make a left-hand turn like we would do here in BC. We've checked, there's no pedestrians, great. And all of a sudden, wham, someone hits us from behind. Uh, someone in a truck who basically saw the flashing green light and just drove irregardless of where we happened to be parked in our little vehicle there, making the left-hand turn. We pulled off the side, and, and the guy was uh, apologetic. He knew it was his fault. He shouldn't drive into the back of somebody. But we just kind of said, like, what happened there? He said, well, that's a left-turn indication, a flashing green. And we went, why didn't they tell us this when we rented the vehicle? Because things work differently, you see, in different places. That is not how they were in Ontario, a flashing green. Just so you know, if you ever go there, that means it's a left turn indicator. You get, you have right away. Who knew? Uh, we didn't. And um, things work differently in different places. And as we begin our summer series today, we're going to be looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, actually, just the first little chunk of it, the introduction called the Beatitudes. And you know, one of the best definitions of culture that I've ever heard is just simply this. It's the way we do things around here. That's what culture is. It's the way we do things around here. And as we look at Jesus' teaching over these next weeks, we are going to see the counter-cultural, upside-down way we do things in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus will be describing. And as we start this series, I thought it would be good to begin with, um, well, maybe the most famous impassioned atheist voice of our time. The Oxford professor Richard Dawkins he writes this, Jesus was surely one of the great ethical innovators of history. The Sermon on the Mount is way ahead of its time. That's a remarkably honest admission for somebody who really doesn't believe in God and, and would almost point people away from belief in God. He says, this is one of the greatest teachings there is. Why start there now? Well, just to say this, no matter, when, when I talk with people, it doesn't matter where they're coming from. If they, if they 
you know, have a sort of quote-unquote religious background or even an irreligious slant. Essentially, everybody I talk to, maybe it's just my circle, everybody I talk to, they want to be good people. They want to be good people who live the good life. They want to find a sense of fullness and meaning and purpose. But here's the challenge, and maybe I'll pose it to you as a question. If you were to define the good life, what features would that include? Like, what sort of life seems to be the blessed life? Or maybe to thicken that up a bit, um, if you were to ask your, like, just do a, do a poll at your workplace or in your neighborhood with the people that you know, and you ask them, okay, what does it mean to be blessed? What, is, what does the good life look like? Just think about that for a moment. How would your neighbors respond to that question? And, and I ask it because everybody is walking around with a vision of how they believe life should be. To quote the songwriter John Mayer, oh, everyone believes in how they think it ought to be. You know what? He's right. Everyone has some vision of how life works best. But the challenge, of course, is that we live in a moment when the idea about where to find the good life, well, that, that everybody kind of points to say, well, you have to look inside yourself for that. Somehow we need to generate our own sense of what the good life is even to define what happiness is for me. <laughs> like we, we hear that phrase, you know, that's my truth. And we hear it with enough frequency in, in our world around us that we might not even blink at how odd of a statement that is. That something could be my truth and not yours. And so this series, uh, it's going to help us kind of back up and, and think about a little bit more to assess what the good life really entails. I'm also aware that some of you are listening in. Maybe you're watching online as well, and, and maybe you're just exploring Christian faith right now. You, you, you're interested, but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I am so glad that you're watching this or a part of this series. And, and my sense is that um, this is a great place to start if, if you want to explore what the good life is all about, to look at Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes how God intends life to look. I think this is worthy of our attention. For just listen to how Yale historian Jaroslav Pelikan, he's wi widely regarded as one of the most important historians of our time. He says it like this, the Sermon on the Mount remains the greatest moral document of all time. The greatest moral document of all time? I think he's right. And if he is, if, if you just want to know something about the good life, there's a place to start. Because if that's true, this will shape everything of how we see the world. Now, one more thing before we jump into reading the text. This brings us back to the question of simply how do we define good? You know, going back a long ways, 300 years before Jesus even, there was a moral philosopher named Aristotle. And what he taught about goodness, it actually still stands and has been uh, reaffirmed even among Christian people throughout the centuries. He basically says that what makes a thing good is when it accomplishes the goal it was made for. It becomes what it was made to be and does what it was made to do. That's how you know that thing is, quote unquote, good. If you want to get fancy, the Greek word for that is telos. It means the end or the goal of life. And he says a thing is good when it uh, meets its telos, when it lives that out. Like, for example, if you were to say, like, what's a good knife? A good knife is a knife that cuts well and does it consistently. What's a good power tool? Well, it fulfills the purpose for which it was designed. 
in a similar way, living the good life and being a good person means becoming who we were made to be and fulfilling the things we were made to do. Like there's a match. It's not, and it's not just about doing good things, by the way. It's, it's becoming a sort of person who in our character lives with integrity. It's like we're lined up. There's a match between who we are, what we do, and our design if we're living it out. And the basic assumption of a purely secular life, and by that I mean a life lived without reference to God, is that there is no maker, or if there was a maker, we couldn't know who he, she, or it really wanted, so we kind of have to define things on our own terms. But listen, if, if that's true, if there is no purpose, there's no design, there's no telos to be fulfilled, that means we become the final judge of anything that's good. It's all up to us. There is no quote-unquote real good. It's simply defined internally. And so to even ask the question, what is the good life, assumes some level that there is a goal, that there is a designer, actually. And then when we see this, Jesus walks on the scene, and he begins to announce the kingdom and his message, and he speaks with authority. He speaks as though he knows how life works best, And he speaks as though he intimately understands the design. Actually, he speaks as though he's the designer himself, the purposer. And what if he is? This would mean that his vision of life, his definition of goodness is the definition. And if that's true, that shows us how we actually find a life of happiness, of fullness, of fulfillment. But it's not, and this is key, and this is where I want to leave us with this first chunk this morning. It is not going to come from creating something within yourself. It's from discovering and then living out who he made us to be. It ultimately comes by putting ourselves in touch with the one who made us. So today, in this first message beginning this series, I just want to take a big picture look at the text And then we're going to slow down in the weeks to come and look at each beautiful statement of blessing. And we'll see how it totally subverts our expectations. It shows us an upside down kind of kingdom, Jesus' vision for what is good. And perhaps the key issue that we'll begin to wrap up or dig into today is just simply, how can we be happy? And the answer is probably much different than we ever dreamed and better. Let's pray as we begin. God, we thank you so much that you inspired the author of this text, Matthew, to write down what Jesus taught so that we would have a record of it, so that we could listen to it, so that you could change us through it. And Holy Spirit, we ask that we would be fully open to everything you're going to say. Amen. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 4. Yes, we're going to start before the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's actually really important to see what comes right beforehand. Because a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That's just introductory hermeneutics. (laughs) All that to say, if you don't know what is coming before something, you're going to end up misunderstanding the text. So we're going to start in verse 23, understanding that Jesus has just called a group of of followers, his disciples, to join him on his journey. He's called them from beside the, the Sea of Galilee. And then we read this in verse 23 of chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, 
and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, as we think about this text, my guess is that some of the things that would feature highly on our typical list of the blessed life, this isn't it. (laughs) Poverty of spirit Mourning, persecution, like Jesus, what are you smoking? But the Beatitudes, they tell us things work differently in different places. The way of the kingdom, this paints a radically different picture of the good life, of the life God blesses. It actually is intended to critique and then correct almost everything we thought we knew. Three observations, and then we'll dig into what this means for us. First, look again at what comes directly before the Beatitudes. We read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus shows by his teaching about the good news of the kingdom. There's that word kingdom again. And he demonstrates in power and compassion what the kingdom is gonna look like. People are healed. There's liberation from spiritual dark forces. Now the people of Israel, they had been awaiting a time when God would come and rescue them. Now their anticipation was of a military leader, someone who would kick out those dirty Romans and set up a political rule on earth. And they believed that the Messiah would be the one who picks up the sword to establish God's reign. And so this crowd forms around Jesus. They've experienced his powerful work, but now he knows he needs to instruct them about what the kingdom is really like. So he sits down. That's the posture of a rabbi in teaching. And he begins to teach them. Now Jesus is clarifying what the kingdom is all about. And this is remarkable. Just flip back to 4.17. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Come near. Like the kingdom is already in breaking. It's in some ways already present. Second, notice there are eight beatitudes. These are statements of blessing. Now, I take the last sort of two blessings to be one. Uh, It talks about persecution and then it elaborates on it. So I think there's actually really eight beatitudes, even though you see nine statements of blessing. (laughs) I think maybe there just needs to be a little bit more explanation for this whole persecution bit. (laughs) Makes sense to me. But you'll notice the first and last beatitudes, if you look at them in in the text there, They're different than the rest. 
We read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Then the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. So the promise and the tense are equal in the first and the last beatitude. The rest of them, you'll notice, are different. The other beatitudes speak in a future sense, for they will be comforted. They will be filled. The first and last, they repeat. Something's happening there. The kingdom of heaven seems to be a theme. Now, in, um, in ancient writing, it was a typical feature to use. You actually find it today in poetry as well, uh, is to, when there's a repetition at the beginning and the end of something, the repeated thing tells you what it's about. And the repeated thing tells us that this is about the kingdom of God. It bookends it. The, the technical term is an inclusio, for those who want to be fancy. Um, an inclusio bookends and tells you this is the theme of the whole thing. So as we begin the Beatitudes, we understand that it's the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're going to be talking about all throughout this. We find that the kingdom has actually arrived. It is theirs. Those who are poor in spirit, it belongs to them already. It's in the present. So those who step in, he's talking about people who are already inside the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. But then there's also this future sense. There's something still to come. You will be comforted. You will see God. So there's both the already and not yet tension of the kingdom. Jesus will return. He will. And he will finally and fully uh, initiate and inaugurate his kingdom in, in its full sense but we live in an in-between time. You've probably heard this before, and I'll repeat it again. Um, Just as D-Day was, you might say, the end of the war, really. It began the end. It's the beginning of the end. Uh, When when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in in the Second World War, that battle ended the war, essentially. But not entirely. VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day, came months later. There were still skirmishes. There were still fires to be put out. There were still uh, enemy forces to be pushed back. And the kingdom of God is kind of like that. It's already present in Jesus. And yet the final and full victory day is still to come. And so we live in the in-between time. And everything Jesus teaches us is about how to live now in the in-between time knowing that victory day is coming. We, we run, we, pardon me, we, we work from the victory that Jesus has accomplished in light of that already. So what's the kingdom all about? Well, that's what the Beatitudes do. Uh, Scholar D.A. Carson, he calls these the norms of the kingdom. He says this is what's normal in kingdom life. So the Beatitudes are both descriptive. They just describe the reality of, of, of blessing and God's blessing and where it rests and on whom it rests, but they do more than that. They're also prescriptive in that they invite and cultivate in us character transformation. They help develop us as those, when we step into the kingdom, this is the goal. This is how Jesus is going to change us. These define citizens of the kingdom. And when I read this text, I I have two responses to it, and you might share this. As, As you listen to it, my first response is that I'm drawn to it like a moth to a porch light on a summer night. When I read this text, I go, oh, I would love to have friends who look like that, who are humble, who, who know how to mourn, who are, who are meek and 
They're after what's right and true. Their intentions, their hearts are pure. They want to seek peace in the world. I want friends like that. And then my second response is, oh God, look at how much work you'd have to do in me if I were to look like that. It it, it almost uh, overwhelms me at how deeply I both want this and see the lack of some of these things or, or the need for them to be deepened. Maybe that's the better way to put it. I want to be like this and you might feel the same. Fortunately, the renovation, this radically different kingdom and those who live in it, it is not just up to us to figure it out. Jesus the King is the one who opens the way for us to experience this, to find our way home. Now, just to clarify something else as well, when you read the kingdom of heaven, you'll notice that other biblical authors, the other gospel writers in particular, will use the phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, don't let that confuse you. They mean the same thing. Uh, Matthew, in, in classic Jewish form, avoids the use of the name of God out of just simply reverence and respect. So he'll use it, but sparingly compared to the others. But he doesn't mean like the kingdom of heaven means, well, that's like, I don't know, somewhere those who have faith in Jesus will go after they die. No, that's not what he means. He means this is the realm and the sphere of God's rule. This is where God is king. That's what he's talking about. And that's why it can be present even now. And that's why the life that we're called to live is the life right now to live the kingdom way. Again, things work differently in different places. Third, this is our our, our final observation that we'll just talk about what some of this means. Um, When the owner of the Chicago Bulls described Michael Jordan's early retirement, temporary early retirement in uh, the early 90s, He said this about him. He's living the American dream. The American dream is to reach a point in your life where you don't have to do anything you don't want to do and you can do everything you want to do. That might be the American dream or the Canadian dream, if we're honest, but is that God's dream for us? (laughs) What will ultimately satisfy the the hungers of our soul? Is, Is that, is what Michael Jordan experienced, is that what it means to be blessed? Now the Beatitudes, they get their name from the word blessed in a roundabout kind of way. Beatitude is actually, uh, has its roots in the Latin word beatus. I don't speak Latin, so I'm probably butchering that. <laughs> Which is translated from the Greek word markarios. It's sometimes translated as happy or fortunate. And, and actually, those are good renderings. That, that, that makes sense. Th- those can be translated that way. Markarios does carry the sense of happy, but probably not in the way that we as modern people define the word. Because happy for us is almost always uh, connected to happy circumstances. And so it's, uh, scholar D.A. Carson, again, he puts it well, to be, to be blessed. And this is the definition of it. To be blessed fundamentally is to be approved of by God. Let me say that again. To be blessed is fundamentally to be approved of by God. And I, and I think being approved of by God is actually the deepest kind of happiness a person could ever know. So Carson says, those who are blessed will generally be profoundly happy, but blessedness can't be reduced to happiness. Now, I think the best sort of English equivalent to the, to the way that blessedness is being used here is when a young man seeks the blessing of a young woman's parents when he intends to ask her, hand 
in marriage. See, the parent's blessing is what? It's their approval. And to receive that blessing will make that young man profoundly happy. Not only because he gets to marry this young woman, but because he does so with the full support of her parents, her family. It has the sense of these people are for me. They're not against me. Let me tell you, I remember the day when, uh, when I met with Catherine's parents at the Second Cup in Prince George, and I was, it was a nerve-wracking day. <laughs> that day of asking their approval, their blessing for me to ask their daughter if I could marry her. And it wasn't just nerve-wracking because of the marriage piece. It was because I was ultimately asking them, will you approve of me being your son-in-law? I, I want to know that I... Uh, that you're for me and not against me, that we're, we're with each other in the relationship going forward. And, and that does make you profoundly happy when you have the blessing of others, the forness of others. But let's thicken that up even more. For those who want God's approval over every other approval, that will set your heart singing, to know that you're blessed by God, approved by him. Again, Carson puts it so well. He says, if the approval of God means more to us than the approval of loved ones, no matter how cherished, or colleagues, no matter how influential, then the Beatitudes will speak to us very personally and deeply. Indeed, that is true. And the sense of blessing or approval, that helps us make sense of the reality that some of the quote-unquote blessings that are listed aren't what we typically mean by blessing. It's to say, to those who mourn, God is for you. God is with you in your heartbreak. He will be your ultimate comforter. And at the fullness of his coming, there will be a greater comfort than you can even dream right now. Do you see that? Do you see how that approval is the blessing? even for those who mourn, that God could be with you in it, that he could be for you in it. And so these, they describe where and on whom the blessing and favor of God rests, but then they also open us up to the transformative power, reorienting our minds and practices. So three implications now. First, in the Beatitudes, Jesus invites us to see to perceive with a whole new set of lenses, to look at life differently. He wants us to change the way we see the world. And when we change the way we see the world, it changes the way we live in the world, doesn't it? See, Jesus confronts and corrects the misconceptions of what the kingdom would be like for his first audience. And he even uses some of the common sayings of his day to make his point. See, in both Greek and Jewish literature, you will find descriptions of a blessed man. And, and it often goes like this. They have obedient children, a good wife, faithful friends, and is successful in business, financially, and, and, and so forth. <laughs> and we'd probably be going, yeah, that's, that's kind of how we probably would define the blessed life too. But then Jesus takes these sayings, these ideas, and then he just upends them. He, he intentionally flips them on their heads, countering these claims. He intends to confront us with fresh vision. About a generation ago, J.B. Phillips wrote his own set of Proverbs that, that he said, oh, this is probably the, the Proverbs of people in the modern world, how we live. He puts it this way, happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are they who complain, for they get their own way in the end. Happy are the blasé, 
for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable men of the world, for they know their way around. (laughs) Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice. Now, maybe that's an overstatement. (laughs) Maybe it's not. Either way, I think it's fair to say that in our world, we tend to, well, honor the beautiful, to venerate the successful, and give accolades to those who have it together. Jesus offers a disruptive vision for us. Like everything you thought about the good life, it's wrong, or at least it's distorted. Listen to this. So the question for us, in what ways might Jesus be confronting your vision of the good life? Go back to that description I asked you at the beginning. How would you define what's blessed? What's the good life? What's your vision? How does this, how do these beatitudes push on those? How do they confront those? How do they challenge them? How do they actually encourage you and and draw you into something better, perhaps? Because we find that the blessing of kingdom life, here's what I love the most. It's open to everybody, especially those who are broken, especially those who, when they look at the rest of the world, they go, I don't fit here. Jesus says, guess what? In the kingdom, you belong there. It's especially good news for those who are broken and those who are longing for a better world those often push to the sidelines. That's the second thing we see. Being formed as a citizen of this kind of kingdom is ultimately making us like this king, like King Jesus. And that will actually take his life coming in and transforming us, restoring us and renewing us. We cannot do this ourselves. See, what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount is, is not intended to say, if you follow these rules, Maybe you'll make it into the kingdom. Maybe if you're good enough, you'll be blessed by God. That would be what we maybe expect, but it's not what we get. Thanks be to God. Remember, Jesus heals these people first. He liberates them from the dark spiritual forces first. The order matters. These are then statements. Now, now there are statements about entering the kingdom. Yes, there are. The very first beatitude, in fact, says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven if you're not poor in spirit. More on that next week. If you don't understand your need for God, what would you want to have to do with this kingdom? So there are uh, elements of how you enter the kingdom here. But this is not about how do you get saved. That's not the primary thing that we're being taught. We're being taught what do God's people look like? Who are the blessed ones? Uh, our son Connor brought this eraser home from school. Now, it's a rather large eraser. I'd never seen anything like it before. And when I asked him about it, he said, a big eraser for big mistakes. <laughs> As I heard that, I said, man, that's what I need in my life. The Beatitudes align us with the only one who can really provide the transformation, the kingdom life that Jesus talks about. Like a big eraser for big mistakes, Jesus offers what we could never do for ourselves. That's the gospel. He ultimately meets us and heals us through his work on the cross. And that's a healing in life I think we ultimately long for, for ourselves and our world. In a conversation with Pastor Russ this last week, uh, he just made a really great point, and um, I'm just going to kind of reflect on that a little bit. Like in our world and in this moment, I, I think particularly reckoning with more findings of unmarked graves all across our country in this last two weeks, it highlights the incredible need for Jesus' healing work for our country. 
It calls for citizens of the kingdom to take up our calling to be peacemakers, to mourn, to humbly seek righteousness, like the right way of living. Remember, we read in 424, Jesus heals those suffering severe pain. I just think of our indigenous brothers and sisters across this country who are suffering severe pain with these findings. Some of them have been wrestling with it all their lives and, and it just wasn't recognized. This ought to lead us to pray, oh God, may this same healing be present in our country and may we be agents of it, parts of that. So the question for us is, will I rest in this hope rooted in Jesus and then will I allow God's transformative work in me to help me participate in the transformation of the world? That's what we're being called into. We really are. And here's the last thing. In embracing Jesus' vision of the kingdom, we are freed from the hideous pressure of trying to create and then fulfill our own sense of purpose or destiny. Man, we find that that fullness and simply becoming by, by God's grace who God made us to be. I, I recently read how a church in Ottawa sort of described, and this is how they began their statement of faith, and I loved it. He said, it, it says this, we love our city, but we also recognize that our city offers countless counterfeit gods, salaries, job titles, qualifications, relationships, sex, charity, morality, the list goes on and on. These can all be good things. However, we can easily end up building our entire lives around them. They can become what we say, that's the good life. It's essentially what they're saying there. We are prone to treating good things like God things, and they make lousy gods. Then they go on, Jesus shows us a different way to live. A way that means we don't need to search for our life's purpose, meaning, and identity, and possessions, and experiences. Instead, we find our everything in Him. And that's just it. You don't have to search for your life's purpose. You don't. You don't have to search for the meaning of life. You don't have to search and build an identity for yourself. Isn't that great news? You're free from that. You're free. Guess what? If there's anything you hear today, you're free. You don't have to build an identity. Praise be to God. It is not found in looking within. It is only found in looking to Jesus who loved you and gave himself up for you. His is the approval you really need. His is the blessing that will set your heart singing. Because the notion that we have to create a purpose and then fulfill it, that is a crushing burden. And as I look out at our world today, I see people crushed all over the place. And that's what burdens my heart to share this news, that you're free in Christ. Like what if our hearts are only <laughs> begin to rest and find their fullness when we follow the progression of what the Beatitudes give us? When we come to see our poverty of spirit, like we recognize our absolute need for God, that we are spiritually and morally bankrupt. And that leads us to mourning, mourning over our own sin, mourning over the brokenness we see in the world around us, mourning when we finally come to understand that even the reason why we did anything good in the first place, that too was self-centered. We begin to mourn over that, that it forms in us a meekness as we get in the presence of God with it, a humility about ourselves that fosters a desire to actually care for the needs of others around us, to hunger and thirst for a way that lines up with God's ways in the world. 
And that, that leads us to be a merciful sort of people, to be pure in heart, like our intentions aren't just for self-centered gain, they're actually for the sake of others and glorifying God. And that we would want to make peace in the world, be agents of that peace. And what if in all of that, living in this way, the, the Jesus way, that so critiques the powers of darkness that there will actually be pushback against us. Jesus says that will happen too. So you see, there's actually progression. As we move through these Beatitudes, we'll find out that, that we are being, not only a description of the kingdom, but we are being formed in this way through the kingdom and through the king himself. It's not a once-through progression, folks. As we come around these Beatitudes, you'll find, like, I've been here before, but that needs to deepen. And it's this spiral of ever deepening. As we come closer to the king, we get more and more in touch with how the king is shaping and forming us. And that's what we're going to see. And that's what I'm so excited for in this series. See, to step into kingdom life, life with God, is to step into a life that's pictured here and that's being formed in us. Are you ready for that? Let's pray as the team comes forward to lead our closing song. Jesus, as, as we read what you taught us, about the nature of the kingdom, about what blessing really looks like. We want to say thank you. As I read this, it stirs my heart just to give thanks that, that things aren't how they seem, that things work differently in different places, that, that the way things work in this world isn't all there is, that the depression that we might feel as we look at, is this it? Is this all we have? Is this the way the world works? You're... Beatitudes tell us no. And we give you thanks for that. And we ask now, Lord, that, that as, we, as we think about that crushing pressure to try to define life on our own terms, we also give you thanks for the freedom that you offer us. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. In any places in life, maybe where people listening in today have been holding on to a, a desire to kind of make life work on their own terms, I pray, Father, that you'd be enabling us to open our hands to you and simply trust you. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.